You're on Radio 191 FM, The Politrick Show, and I'm joined by Rosie Overall from the Media, Film and Communications Department here at Otago University. Hey, Rosie. Hi. Uh, so you're back from Japan a, a few days ago. Um, what were you doing over there? That's I understand that's your kind of your area of interest. Yeah, so um, I've been interested in Japan since my PhD, so I looked at um, death metal and masculinities and nationalism in Japan, and I've been back every year since, and this year I went to a conference at um, Tokyo University called Cultural Typhoon and did a paper, a panel with some other New Zealanders about New Zealand and its position in the Asia-Pacific. Okay. And then I also did... um, a, a lecture seminar at Chul University on um, hikikomori and Japanese mas- uh, continuing this idea of Japanese mm. masculinities. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe we should start there. What What is uh, hikikomori? Um, well, there uh, this phenomenon that's um, coined by psychiatrists in Japan called Saito Sensei, um, where mostly young men, but sometimes young women. Um, sort of shut themselves in so hiku in Japanese is the verb to close in um, so hikikomori is like a person who shut themselves in or kind of uh, become a hermit mm. in their own house but usually it's the family home so it's um, the child's bedroom and there's sort of figures that um, suggest that there's between 700,000 and almost 2 million of these people in Japan. Wow. Yeah, most, wow. mostly men, yeah. What, what is seen as, as the kind of uh, cause or the motivation behind it? Um, well, Saito, uh, the psychiatrist who coined it, looks at the family. Um, particularly, he uses um, traditional psychoanalytic frameworks, I guess Freudian, to think mm. about the mother's role, and particularly this idea of overloving. Um, a Japanese idea of amae, which is not translatable into English, but it's like sort of too much love or too sweet, overindulging the sun. But I was, um, I'm looking at it from a different perspective to think about it in terms of a willful refusal of um, normative Japanese uh, capitalist culture, but also heteronormative culture, and kind of um, thinking about the hikikomori as a queer subjectivity. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, um, Japan and I guess that area of Asia, East Asia, China and, and Korea it's, has always kind of been a mystery to me. It's kind of like a mysterious beast and, you know, you think about how many people live there and stuff. I wonder, you know, what what are the, the main, I guess, features or characteristics of masculinity in Japan and especially in relation to nationalism because I've always wondered, you know, if you think about World War Two mm. and everything that happened, the fire bombings and stuff, and and now, you know, it seems that they're, you know, they suddenly popped into the, the developed world, you know, they're, you know, important on the, in, the, in a globalised financial kind of context. So, yeah, I guess, if, yeah, if you could talk to the, I guess masculinity especially as relating to nationalism yeah well i looked at this in my thesis and the book that came out of that so a few things and certainly um the modern japanese subject and the contemporary japanese subject so the post-war masculinity Mm. is certainly completely constituted via that war um so 
Um, you are right, it was almost a forced modernisation and almost a colonial move by America, MacArthur coming in and um, rebuilding, sort yeah. of forcing the economy. And a lot of... Um, I'm, I'm In this particular incident, I'm just going to quickly talk about metal. Yeah. A lot of those um, men that I interviewed in the metal scene um, were f nationalists, so sort of fascists. Mm. And Well, not sort of, they were fascists, but they... Um, really resented that history and felt that that was an imperial move by America um, and had sort of taken away essential Japanese spirit, Yamato Damashi, which is a samurai spirit that was a phrase utilised by the fascists uh, during the wartime, leading up to the war to sort of describe the spirit driving things like the kamikaze pilots. And since the war, that w that phrase is being sort of stricken from the vocabulary because it's a fascist phrase. And these men were trying to sort of reclaim it through metal. It's obviously, they're a subculture, and it, there's a fascist element is a minority in Japan. But the, the 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 dominant mode of masculinity in Japan is centered on that forced uh, uh, modernization through the implementation of a capitalist mode of economics, which is the figure of the salary man. So the establishment of the company system um, came into its own after the war and um, this uh, uh, worked um, through uh, um, sort of invoking uh, men to work for companies um, in, you know, regular company type jobs, but um, it was seen as a national duty. After the war, there was a sort of um, triangulated idea of the nation with the mother or the woman as the mother of the nation running yeah. a fantastic household and the husband as um, going out in his suit and earning money. Um, so this, these were seen as national duties. So those two identities, the housewife and the salaryman, are bound up in an imaginary of um, the modern Japanese nation. Yeah. Right. More recently with... Uh you know, we hear stories about economic downturn, the financial crisis. I understand uh, hit everywhere globally, but um, was was it uh, also bad in Japan? Yeah, so they had a bubble period um, till the nineties, and the bubble burst, right. which has actually meant that a lot of the company jobs have become uh, less available or not for life. So mm. after the war, it would be you'd go into that job after uni and you'd be in that company till you retired. Um, so there's less and less jobs, more and more casualised labour and actually unemployment. And it's a it's unfortunately a, a country with um, a, a almost no welfare system. So there's not really a dole. So if you have, if you've failed to get any a, a job, for instance, like these men, um, the family is uh, beholden to look after you. The mother yeah. comes in as the housewife too. Right, yeah, because there's... A, here in New Zealand and, and many other places, there's this stereotype that uh, East Asia East Asians are uh, uh, politically indifferent. And uh, I wonder, you know, what that economic downturn has, has done to, to, to the you know the politics of the place and the national identity and you know does it tie in with this that with these shut-ins with these uh hikimori absolutely um so firstly there is um a strong radical or progressive political element amongst young people which is a response to i guess 
all over the world this is the same thing the rising precarity of um options around um your your job or your working life yeah um including um involvement in traditional political parties the communist party is still quite strong in japan but also more anarchist politics so the conference i was at in tokyo had included activists within the conference space and there was lots of stalls and food not bombs and things like that mm. there's also that kind of grassroots level of support groups so as i said there's no welfare yeah so there is like a strong network of um, young people supporting other young people including um, some programs to try and get hikikomori out of their rooms um, and involved in community projects um, usually around food cooking and things like that but um Again, they have a low success rate because of actually getting them out of the room is um, an initial problem there, sort of a mm. hidden problem. But certainly um, people like Anne Allison, um, a, a recent academic writing on um, Precarious Japan is her book, talks about the hikikomori as um, a sort of... Vis well, an invisible but much talked about, certainly in the media, Japanese media, symptom of... Um, the post-bubble mm. economic crash, yeah. Right. I'm joined again by uh, Rosie from the uh, Media, Film and Communications Department here at Otago University. And uh, we were talking about Japan. Mm -hmm. I think maybe over the world we've seen this, but has there been a, a re-emergence re of a kind of a local tradition or a local culture in a, in a kind of to kind of counter this, uh, I guess people call it cultural imperialism and Americanization of Japan? Um, yeah, so although um, Japan is highly westernised, obviously, um, there is a counter movement. So, for example, in the scene I looked at, the extreme metal scene, and I'm not saying the whole extreme metal scene is like this, but the particular groups I was looking at in Osaka were. Um, certainly because of their nationalism were keen on reviving uh, traditional Japanese music forms so they incorporated taiko drumming and even sometimes shamisen kind of like how we see in Scandinavia as yeah, well. yeah absolutely yeah and actually this music um, although I sort of looked at grindcore in Melbourne the genre in Japan was a bit more sort of black or, or um, sludgier metal so it is a lot like the Scandinavian nationalist metal mm. um, so that's one example but you also I mean they've always had a strong culture so there's still the various the year is punctuated through Shinto festivals and going to the shrine although as um, my new PhD student Megumi um, who's talking, um, writing a thesis about manga and spirituality in Japan? We were talking the other day about how most Japanese don't identify as religious or spiritual. Yeah. But they do practice Shinto as just an everyday part of their life. Yeah. Yeah, I've noticed in um, in regards to China that the sometimes the religious and spiritual stuff does kind of morph into this everyday life ritual and. Also, there you've got the added element of of uh, religion being co-opted by the Communist Party, so it's all a bit confusing. But yeah, that, I've always found that interesting. Um, you know, when I was was growing up and getting into politics and history, blah blah blah, I always, you know, found it interesting that um, 
Japan and, and China on maps and graphs would always kind of be this grey area of religion. Um, but <clears throat> is has it always been like that, or is, is that a recent thing? Well, Shinto is the Japanese religion, which is their traditional ancient religion, and it um, is a goddess-based religion, but also believes in spirits and ghosts inhabiting um, uh, nature, but also inanimate objects. They also incorporate their state, again, imaginary, into that religion. So before the war, the emperor was considered a sort of almost a god on earth um, through the Shinto religion. But through the centuries too, I mean, although Japan was secluded um, for many centuries, um, before that, um, the Chinese, the Buddhist religion had come in. So Buddhism is also widely um, practiced in Japan and certainly has a strong presence in the form of temples and shrines. But it is different to Shinto. But again, um, like I say, I guess in the West we're the same. We, we're punctuated yeah, by yeah, Easter, yeah. Christmas, but people aren't going to say they're Christian. Um, so we have that. But um, also there's a, a revival in new, what they call new religious movements in um, Japan. So some of these are Buddhist sects, um, but also um, there's the cults. I mean, the um, Shinro mm. um, cult being the most famous, which um, led to the Tokyo subway bombing. Yeah. Yeah, does, does that kind of militant cultishness still go on? or is um, There's always, I mean, like Hikikomori, um, the new religious movements are almost a folk devil in local media. So you do get right. a lot of kind of hysterical uh, uh, descriptions of yeah. these Buddhist sects. Um, but it is true. I mean, again, like the West, they, you have some groups that live on com communes or out in the countryside um, who... Um, are sort of considered strange or odd because they've dropped out. But um, and you have the same things: gurus and people giving a lot of money. Mm. But um, yeah, most people um, and actually Christianity hasn't made a huge impact in Japan. Unlike places like Korea, for example, where there's uh, many born again Christians, Japan has less of a um, of that presence as well. Of you know Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons, those kinds of new Christian religions which have had an impact in um, other Asian countries. Yeah, yeah. Um, you've already mentioned uh, music and and uh, the kind of uh, the the effects of the economic downturn and, and low wages and uh, globalization, I guess, and um, neoliberalism has had on on culture. What other kind of examples are there in in film and and television where where that shows through? I, I know you're a, a big fan of the. Uh, I guess it's seen as a countercultural kind of cult classic. Ghost in the Shell, mm -hmm. and you know there's definitely some. As with most good sci-fi, there's some political undertones there. But I wonder if more recently there's been the, this kind of response to that we've seen throughout the world, response to the elite or response to the capitalist system in film and television. Um, that's a really good question, and it gives me a chance to plug next uh, first semester next year. I'll be teaching Digital Asia again, where we um, look at texts like Ghost in the Shell and other pop cultural texts from all over Asia, including Japan, um, considering them through a social and political framework. But um, 
Um, one of the texts we look at in Digital Asia is called Welcome to the NHK, which specifically deals with hikikomori and otaku. So otaku are kind of like geeks or nerds mm. who aren't locked in their rooms, but um, they they're, have an obsession or a, a very strong hobby. A serious hobby is the word they use in Japan um, around um, a fandom, so um, cartoons or comic books, pop music, anything could be baseball um, and that text follows a hikikomori man trying to sort of come to terms with why he's ended up that way and you know I guess it's sentimental you know he meets a girl and gets yeah. better and but it does look at a lot of um, these themes including new religious movements through a pyramid scheme cult like Amway I guess but right. the Japanese version yeah. and so all the characters in it have sort of been hurt or implicated by the economic crash and they're dealing with it in different ways. So he's become a hikikomori, his neighbour has become an otaku who's unable to relate to women. You know, he has the sex dolls and yeah, these kinds of things. Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah, and another old school friend joins the Amway-type cult and loses all her money and they sort of have to save her. So that's a manga... Um, so it was a comic originally, then turned into a cartoon, an anime. Um, and again, Anne Allison talks about the sort of um, rise of um, homelessness genre of literature um, in Japan too, since the bubble crash. So stories of people who've lost everything, who's often their parents have abandoned them and um, they've had to sort of make do squatting or living in parks but usually that ends with the neoliberal ending of they work hard and become a success so one of the most famous ones is i can't remember his name but he goes from homeless to becoming a famous manzai comedian which is the sort of slapstick comedy um, genre which is famous in japan so some of them are incorporated back into a neoliberal mythology but um, certainly there are a lot of cultural texts which address that growing economic precarity within the space yeah, yeah. what was the uh, name of that manga again uh, it's called welcome to the nhk so nhk is the national broadcaster mm. yeah so he has this moment of he's not only hikikomori but he's ordering um psychedelics through the post so he's tripping in the first scene of the the manga mm. and he he thinks he's got the answer that the reason he's hikikomori is nothing to do with psycho his psychology or cultural issues it's that he's getting um messages through the national broadcaster right. to become hikikomori yeah amazing we'll have to give it a look yeah um thanks for coming in rosie it's a pleasure um so yeah it's always a pleasure to to have you on the show